Welcome to Industry Insights, a podcast for, by, and about the film industry from the Berlinales European Film Market, produced in cooperation with Goethe Institute and co-funded by Creative Europe Media. Today's episode was developed in partnership with the Nostradamus Project at the Göteborg Film Festival. My name is Johanna Koljonen. I'm a media analyst, strategic consultant, and experienced designer based in Sweden. I'm also the author of the annual Nostradamus Report, which looks at the near future of the screen industries. This year's Nostradamus Report is the 10th, incredibly, and it was released at the Marché du Film in Cannes just a short while. We'll link to a free download in the show notes, and you will probably find all of its topics pretty interesting. But today here on the podcast, we will actually follow up on last episode's topic. That episode was called, How do we reach and engage with young audiences? And that could actually be our headline today as well, as we zoom in on the parts of the Nostradamus report that discuss the film and TV industry's relationship to young people. The report offers two approaches to this, a kind of dystopian description and a possibly utopian one, and both may be true. The more negative description of these relationships takes the form of a kind of doom loop, and it goes something like this. We know that young and diverse talent find it especially difficult to break into the industry. We also know that the industry has a problem retaining the people who get in because of the work environment, because of expectations of working for free early in your career, uh, because of uncertain economic prospects and so on. And this affects everyone, but it especially affects our youngest and our oldest colleagues. They tend to drop out. So keeping young and diverse talent is hard, which makes it more difficult for us to speak with relevance to young audiences. And lack of relevant content means lower engagement and even fewer people who will try to break into the industry. Studies have also shown that if you ask young people what celebrities they admire, very few names on that list are film or TV stars. The positive vision is based on the observation that young people consume and produce more audiovisual content than ever before, and the rapidly approaching next generation of digital filmmaking tools make quite ambitious film storytelling possible, even on relatively small budgets. This means that smaller markets can compete with big ones in the kinds of visuals that they produce. It means that television can compete visually with cinema, and that unestablished filmmakers can compete with established voices. All of this should make film storytelling exciting again, both the kind that we make for young people and the kind that young people make themselves. To talk about which of these visions seems likelier and how to move towards positive outcomes, I have invited two of the interviewees of this year's report. Max Malka is head of scripted at Endemolshain Finland. She most recently created the youth-oriented Netflix show Dance Brothers and has produced feature films and TV drama for children and young adults. Senad Dab is VP Young Adult Content at France Television. He commissions a great variety of shows that are not only hits in the demographic locally, but get sold to or remade in a very, very impressive number of territories. Stork, Parlement and Derby Girl among them. Welcome to the show, Senad and Max. Thank you. Hi, Joanna. Okay, I think for the purposes of this conversation, maybe let's define a young audience as people who are about under 25, and maybe children then would be under 12 if that distinction is relevant. But if we're talking about the under 25s as, as our focus. So I guess the studies show, for instance, like you, Max, talk about in the report, that, that young people are using more and more 
audiovisual content, but the growth is happening in social video, in particular on TikTok. So this question for both of you, from your perspective, how would you say that young people are engaging uh, with these more traditional media formats like film and TV series? What is the role that film and TV plays to young audiences today? Max, let's start with you. Well, I think you kind of touched upon some of the the changes that are happening in your introduction. I completely agree with, you know, the kind of aesthetic of cinema coming closer to quality TV and and the way we are creating and consuming those worlds are coming closer and closer. But I'm sure that Senet has much more, you know, concrete statistical information about how young viewers are engaging with these these formats. For me, it feels like a feature film that I made for children and families in 2016 would be really hard to make again and have similar results next year because the world has changed quite rapidly, I feel like, especially because of COVID and that on how people go to the cinemas. And I think the kind of attention span and the expectation is different. If you find out that there is a film that you want to see, you kind of have to wait in and see if it's something that you're a big fan of and you can't wait to see, which usually is then something that's based on some strong IP. And then those fans will go to the cinema and see it. Or if you're already trained to to know that it'll be watchable on one of the streamers or you can rent it on your home couch in just maybe a few weeks even. So yeah, that's the first thing that comes to mind. What do you think, Senet? I can't really talk to the issue of cinema, but yes, what seems to be more and more important for younger audiences in terms of engaging with the content is availability. We see more and more than like we have teasing campaigns and, and like talking beforehand of the show seems to be less efficient than proposing the show, getting people hooked on the show when it's available and when they can immediately consume it. And yeah, it's the, the, the age, I think the, the age of like, whenever, wherever, however I want it and, and however I want to consume it is, is, is completely upon us. And for instance, usage on mobile, even if it's not, we see on our, on, on our stats, even if it's not the majority yet of how our younger audiences consume our content, it's still rising and it's still part of the mixed technical ways to consume content. And so because of that, especially for those demographics, we need to think about content differently, even technically and visually. There's a, a huge trend these past few years in cinema, movie and TV photography with really dense images, really dark, low exposure photography. We've heard like hundreds of thousands of people complain about like the two last episodes of Game of Thrones being unwatchable because they were so dark and you couldn't see shit about like the biggest moments of the, of the series. And I see that happening a lot. It's visually, it's artistically, it's a trend. The problem is that if you put that trend on a little, on a small screen 
on a tablet or on, on your phone on the, on the subway or on the bus, you can't see anything. So that's, that's something that I think sometimes filmmakers and we as creators and our, as commissioners and as broadcasters must realize that chances are that our content is not going to be viewed in the perfect situation or on the perfect screen and how the creators have thought about it. And we need to really take that into account. A really, really interesting examples. I was also reminded by your question asking about how the young audience is engaging with this more kind of traditional media formats. I think there's just so much more content media content competing for their attention, that also the competition is fiercer and then the marketing has to be different. So that's maybe one of the biggest things. Like we made three seasons of a young adult series for the national broadcasting channel, Ule, called Dragon Slayer. And I was really happy that the commissioner there had the vision of trying to find the audience that wasn't engaging with the broadcasters online platform, but was on YouTube to go and make further transmedia material that was really basically marketing the story and the show and the characters beforehand on YouTube and even publishing the first episode there and then telling the audience that was already there to go and see the rest of the season on their platform. So kind of trying to find the audience where they already are figuring out who's winning their attention at the moment and then helping them find their way back to the more traditional platforms. And I think we know that the young audiences are watching more streamers, AVOD and VOD rather than linear, but those trends are also rapidly changing. You know, is it, is it a catalog that's coming out and they're binging everything all at once? Does it have to do with episode durations and lengths or not? So it's such a big question, you know, you could talk about just this question for like several hours. <laughs> I want to ask then, Senad, for you as a public service commissioner, would you put things on YouTube? Are you allowed? The rule which we've given ourselves for a while was do not put everything on YouTube, no hyper distribution. Use YouTube as a way and as a means to bring back to the platform. So. We've been experimenting with like one or two episodes of every one of our new seasons on YouTube to bring people back to the platforms that has worked differently from one show to the other. I think it's also because our YouTube channel is not aimed specifically at drama. So people that are used to watching our YouTube channel for like some news, angled news, short documentaries and stuff like that. When they get faced with drama, they're not the, maybe the public that we're trying to hook, but uh, yeah, we need to evolve as the world evolves. And as we talked about times and times, Johanna, the world evolves extremely quickly and we need to be flexible on everything. There's one thing that's a sure killer for anyone in the industry today is lack of flexibility. So you mentioned, Max, before that, that there are different things that are, you know, episode length and so on that might affect what works. So in your experience, and I realize that now we're like basically in, in, in like very well-informed speculation, 
But well, do you have some general advice that you can give to people about about what works? Well, I think we've talked about this before, and I know I share this with a lot of my filmmaker colleagues that how important it is to just trust your own intuition on what you're making and how to be authentic. You have to kind of really believe in what you are doing. But then in addition to that, of course, you have to be well aware of what are the trends and where are the audiences? What are they consuming? So that that comes back to episode durations, as you were saying. So for example, Dance Brothers that we produce for Netflix is 20-minute episodes and it's meant to be binged. And I think no longer is it so that 25-minute is a sitcom with no seasonal dramatic arc, but that stories can have dramatic arcs in shorter forms, even 10 minutes or 15 minutes, and they can have an X amount of episode, doesn't matter. You know, the streamers have made it really a lot more flexible, but I still think that younger audiences are looking for quality. So it has to be well-produced. It has to have that production value. It has to have that quality, not only in how it looks and feels, but also in the story. You, you have to be a responsible storyteller, you know, like what are the values that you're normalizing or promoting in those shows? Is it, you know, is there diversity? Is it current? Is there somehow, is there sustainability normalized? Because these things are important for the younger audiences. So then what about your experiences? First 10 minutes. Actually, first 30 seconds. Like the speed and the rapidity at which that audience can just pop onto something else if the first few minutes don't grasp them is mind-blowing. And it's basically everything that Max said, but all about the pilot. And I know that pilots are a hard thing in France. It's like there are difficult things to succeed in. It's... I think the way we tell stories and the way we craft them and we feel the need to like explain everything, have everything explained before the story starts or everybody will get lost. And it's something that I'm actively working against and fighting, but like it's the first minute of show is do or die for that audience. Definitely. Is, is this something that you have to help your creators with, Sinead? Yeah. But to a certain point, we're not writers, we're not producers. We can push them. Sometimes they crack the code and find how to do it. Sometimes they don't. But as a producer, it's always great to have the commissioner also say things. Because even if as a producer, you've said it to your writer or your director, you might need a second voice to kind of <laughs> break through. What, most so, of the time, yeah, most of the time I have to be the one like pounding on the table and going like, no, this needs to be like this because the producer knows they're not going to be able to carry that point through or they've tried and tried and tried again. Yeah, sometimes the producer is just too close. So it's nice to have like yeah. a second person help you out to get that point across. But I think I heard that, you know, the research made with music and the hits on Spotify, for example, that's the same thing with songs, that it's a one word song is the biggest hit. And like the, it starts with the chorus. There's no more songs that are the mm -hmm. biggest hits that would have a long intro. So there's been a shift in even like the most listened 
songs and the music that the younger audiences are loving and consuming. A huge, huge shift. It's like, basically, we would kind of need to apply, this is, I'm not saying we should do this, but like, apply the recipe marketers in big studio, far from studio movies, do for the trailers on YouTube. The most, if you look at a big budget trailer, movie trailer on YouTube these days, all of them will have like 10 seconds of like the the best, biggest, baddest moments in their trailer. Then a panel going like a new trailer for Spider-Man or whatever. And then the trailer begins and, and tells the story like for two minutes with like an a pre-trailer trailer. Yeah, exactly. And, but then like, it give, and then just, after that, it gives me too much information, I find. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But yeah, it's, it's all about, I think there's a trope that's been going on for a while and I'm not a big fan, but on the other hand, it's very practical is the flashback. So like you begin your story in the middle of the action and right before or right before, or right after the credits, you get back to like five months before and you begin telling your story. That's, that's a trick that we sometimes need to, need to use. And also lots of what I see rising and that I personally absolutely abhor is voiceover. Once again, to be able to like put most information possible in the, in the, in the very first minutes of the, of your show. I've always been a purist about a TV and movie narrative. And I'm, I always thought that voiceover was kind of a, you use voiceover when you're too lazy to show what you want to say. That's how I look at the whole thing. But maybe uh, this is what, this is what proves that, that we are old, you know? Yes. That because even in also, our 40s, we are like... With experience, I tend to more and more also realize and, and think that voiceover for adults, for us, might be too explanatory, but voiceover for young adults and, and when it's well done uh, for young adults is like another way, and we'll get to that later, another way of connecting more rapidly and more efficiently to your character because you're following and hearing about their inner monologue and their inner dialogue. And that's something that might be, yeah, one of the different ways to like engage with that audience. So I told you about like, we need to be flexible. Yeah. I need to put aside my hate of voiceovers and maybe look at it differently. But I think maybe let's talk about that then. What are the thematic or structural ways of, of making something connect. Because in one way, you know, young people always have the same problems. And in another way, young people never live in the same world as the previous generation. So are there themes that are universally, uh, that always work? Or is there something about how to approach these things? Because it's also, I feel like it's also clear that we don't always succeed in connecting with young audiences, especially when we're competing with like Hollywood okay. entertainment. Our local industries are often struggling. So, so clearly it's not so easy. <laughs> but it, what, what would your advice be, Max? Well, I think the values are one thing that I already mentioned. Like what kind of, I'm not saying make preachy, preachy, you know, educational videos, but I'm still thinking, you know, like, thank God it's not the 80s anymore that, you know, we don't normalize sexual harassment and laugh at it in high school films. So, you know, we have evolved in that sense. And I think 
we have to be even more mindful nowadays when we are telling those stories, like who is telling it, whose stories are telling, who's present in the story and who's not present in the story and what are the power structures within the story. So that's one thing. But on the other hand, I always feel like as a producer and as a filmmaker, this is not so far from, for example, making a restaurant and putting together the menu and just hoping that people will come and eat and enjoy it and tell their friends to come and eat and enjoy it. And I don't believe in the fact that you go to the street and you ask the person for the recipe or how, what is it exactly that they want to eat. So I also believe that it's really, the audience doesn't always know what it needs and what it wants. You can't ask them what is your next favorite show or favorite hit or favorite food. You know, I would love to be able to kind of also be brave, take some risks in the storytelling, try to be authentic, trust your own intuition, and deal with themes that you think are relevant and important, and then have the audience find it and be like, wow, I didn't know I needed that. What about you, Sina? For, yeah, for this audience, I'd say that the mirror effect is the most important that they feel represented and in tune with the characters they are seeing. It doesn't mean that the stories only need to be a day-to-day life, believable, and like in, in, in day-to-day problems. Those work well, but even in like fantasy and horror and, and all that, they need to be able to grasp at something that they know and that they feel like they're, they can relate to. So yeah. For me, that's the most important. And that's one of the difficulties creators have for those audiences is to put themselves at the same level and not look at them from the age experience they have. And the worst, worst, very worst thing a creator or producer could do thinking or or creating young adult programming is ask their kids what they think about it or base their characters on what they know of their kids. Because obviously your kids, in even if you have a great relationship with them, they're never, ever, ever going to act the way they do in their everyday life when you're around. So whatever you see from your kids is biased. Whatever your kids tell you, tells you when you ask them something is biased. So basing your, your story, your characters, and how you think this should go on the experience you have with your kids as teenagers, if you have teenagers, is a huge mistake. That's very solid advice. I was thinking about what was available when I was growing up in, in Finland, and this is, would be in the 1980s. And I was also in the Swedish-speaking minority as well. I went to school in Swedish, and th- that was a language group that had no money to make teen drama. So we would get like one show maybe every 10 years. And they were always terrible. Like they were incredibly bad. But we watched it religiously because, well, because partly because we might be acquainted to somebody who was on the show, but also because, because of that mirroring thing. But then on the other hand, I remember that we prioritized watching foreign, well, I mean, U.S. shows, primarily sometimes BBC shows, because I was into genre entertainment. And that wasn't really available or possible with the kinds of budgets that we had. But I, I guess that virtual production is about to change all of that. Now, suddenly, I think that you could produce or commission for the Finnish market or for the French market 
genre shows that will look absolutely amazing. And it's going to come down to the quality of the writing or whether it works or, or not. So do you think that we're going to see a resurgence of genre shows in, for, for younger audiences? I think a third, yeah, a third of our slate and our lineup is genre. So yeah, third to a half. It's, it's a misconception, I think, to think that because you're using genre, you can't talk about the issues and the problems and the real life situations the younger audiences are facing today. The Twilight series was all about uh, how you react and how you interact with your first sexual arousal and puberty and, and all that. I mean, it, there's always the underlying theme and also if we look at JAR today, made for younger audiences, we see how much of day-to-day -day issues and evolutions of society you get in with a more diverse cast, with transgender characters, with, like you said, Max, a, a different way at looking at things that have never been right, but like have been overused, like jokes about sexual harassment and like, ha ha ha, it's funny to make wedgies to a guy in high school, et cetera, et cetera. It being genre doesn't mean that it can be true and, and relatable to the, to the audiences. But what do you think about this, Max? Mm, about the genre coming back or somehow growing? Yeah, I agree with, with the Senate totally. I, I also feel like genre is somehow part of that. It's easier to maybe make something that you become uh, obsessed with and a huge fan of when it's in the genre form. So if we're talking about younger audiences, that they don't say, oh, I really like this. I'm going to recommend it to my friend over at the recess. In that age, you become obsessed. You, you want to see it over and over. You want to have the merchandise. You don't want the episodes to ever end. You want to you know the next season, two weeks from now, since you watched the first season, you have a whole different attitude towards what you really like and enjoy. And I think a genre stories somehow invite even more into this kind of fandom and creating like phenomenas that are larger than the actual story or the series itself. Does it matter whether it's in our own language, whether we have access to those experiences in our own languages? I think it matters. I think it matters a lot, especially for the younger audiences. You know, you, they've had less years to acquire English or other large languages that are globally used. Um, so I think it's really important for children to have and young people to have access to content and stories in their own language. And at the same time, you know, I think it's really interesting how the streamers have also given an opportunity for smaller language areas to have that quality dubbing. And in that way, have your show really travel to then new territories. Because if you, if you want to dub something well, it's not very cheap. And to have, you know, the involvement of an international partner who can do it well and in that way offer your story in the local language for that audience, I think that's also really a great new thing that has come with the streamers that we didn't have before. 
that France has been in a position to, to protect itself more aggressively from cultural imperialism. How are you watching the sort of language trends now? Well, we've seen a huge rise for a long time now in Japanese and Korean content consumption, either anime for Japan or drama for Korea. And those have been massively, for the younger audiences, massively streamed illegally. So with no dubbing, with like really dubious subtitles, but still like very, very active communities, people taking uh, on their time to do the translations and post it as quickly as possible. So I think we're, we're going 50-50. When I look at one of our series, Parlement, which is maybe not the youngest skewing ones of our lineup, but still 50% of the people who watch it dubbed and 50% of the people who watch it in original version. It's a multilingual, it's set in the European Parliament, so it's a multilingual show. And I'd say 50% of it is English and other languages and 50% of the show is in French. So even then we have our population or viewership divided in two between like subtitles and original version and French version. And I think that like, we just have to look also to SCAM We've been, we've finished our run of scam with 12 season. And we, we do know like that one of the reasons why the show took off so massively when it first brought it was because a big chunk of our viewership of our audiences had already seen and loved the Norwegian show, not dubbed and just with subtitles. So I think younger audiences today are more and more about content and stories than the language in which they're told. Squid Games was, even though it, it's rated R in France, was all the rage and all the discussion in, in high school and primary school recess. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I haven't been to all those kids and asked them in what languages they watched Squid Games. But yeah, the globalization of content is really interesting. And I have to say that working with diverse characters in almost all of my shows, it creates kind of a challenge then to dub them because many of the characters are multilingual. So they might speak something with a parent and another language with a friend. So that's also reflective of kind of the reality of a lot of young people. And for example, that our language is evolving. There's a lot of English slang that's coming into the Finnish language. Or you have a character who is from an immigrant background. They speak Finnish, but they make mistakes or they have a accent or there's something about that personality, which the original language and the way they speak it has a point in the story. And those things can get lost in, in translation when you do the dubbing. So that's always been a little bit of a challenge for me to watch the, the dubbed versions of, of the original of what I've produced. And I've been like, oh no, they, they kind of missed the fact that the, the stepfather is, is an immigrant and, and speaks funny. And that's why the, the son is kind of ridiculing him all the time. Because if you dub him Speaking fluently, it's like, why is he ridiculing him? You know, like you kind of miss something. I, I think also that we're going to need some innovation with this. I think there's some show, I can't remember now, maybe it was Pachinko, but there's some show that used a device where they texted different languages in different colors so that the audience could follow like when are different dialect or languages spoken. And I think that seems pretty crude, but like there's, 
certainly like real possibilities moving forward with that. So I wanted now to, to go back to this question of making your own content. The first question is for you, Max, because you, you touched upon this when, when I interviewed you for the Nostradamus report. You said that when everybody can make content, it becomes even more important to have some craft. Do you, can you talk about that? Yeah. What I meant by that was, was the fact that the technology is available to create technically high quality content, to edit it and to publish it and distribute it. The threshold has become so low and you can do it yourself and you can do it internationally. And I think that sometimes there might be a miss conception or wrong kind of expectations of if I've made TikTok videos or if I've been a YouTuber, I can transition and make what we call now, quote unquote, traditional media, TV or cinema, and that, that there wouldn't be that much craft to it when in fact it, it is a craft. And I think that it is high stress. It needs social skills like no other industry. It needs, you know, so many things that take years to really learn and you need support systems to, to have the opportunity to learn them. It needs time. It needs money. You can't just, you know, be a free intern for two years while you learn something. How, what are you going to live on? So I just think that this is something that I often think about when, when thinking about hiring young people, uh, telling their stories with them for them. So, you know, I, I don't want them excluded from the storytelling team, but on the other hand, how to acquire that craft in what ways, in which, what is, what is also a sustainable way of doing it? You know, so I think the past generations, it's kind of been like, you do it out of the passion and, you know, don't care about family life, don't care about your health, don't care about all of that. And I feel like the younger generation it's like, well, nobody's going to take care of me except me. So I have to take care of my own boundaries. I have to work is not everything. It's not my entire identity. You know, there's other things than that. So how to bring into this very challenging craft, this new generation, that, that is the thing that I was thinking about. I don't have any direct yeah. answers except collaboration and patience. So, yeah. So on one hand, you still need to learn the skills, but learning the skills kind of requires you to be in this incredibly difficult environment. Even if you take the film school path, that it's going to be the same. You still have to go jump through all of these hoops. Senad, what's your, your thoughts? Do you, do you have any suggestions for solutions? It's a very, very wide array problem and issue. I don't have a solution. I have tons of solutions. We need to go talk and present our jobs and our industry to our future employees and the future people that are going to make it very, very soon and very early in their life. Uh, as we, as I talked about in the Nostradamus report, like the amount of 16 year old kids, 16 year old kids then that know exactly what all the roles are in, in making a, a movie is impressive, but the amount of kids that think that uh, actors make the story and they decide what they're going to say and the director is just there to hold the camera that don't know what the screenwriter is, is also huge. So 
education and presentation of our different jobs and of our different crafts to a wide array of people. After that, we need to find ways. I have no idea how, but like to find ways to break down the barriers of entry to our, to our jobs, the nepotism, the co-opting, the co-optation, the incredible lack of diversity, both social and ethnic. It's, yeah, it's a revolution that we need to do as an industry to, to be able to be still relevant in a few years. And the thing is that going, going and finding YouTubers and TikTokers and trying to just shove them into a traditional TV project, as we've seen times and times again, is inefficient. Like Max said. They need to be nurtured and helped and worked with. YouTube and TikTok is the place for, for basically, let's shoot the, the first version. Like we write something, we shoot the first version, maybe a second, and then we, we give it to our community and our community likes it. So why should we question ourselves and work more and, and go through the tedious work of development and stuff like that, when we've been shown times and times again, then just like a simple idea could be shot, written, shot, cut, and given to our community for huge success in like two days. So it's, yeah, it's, it's multifaceted and there's a lot of work to do. Thank you. I feel like we have seen, I, I've learned a lot of things. I feel like you have not made me less concerned about all of our problems, but you have made me more hopeful about our possibilities. So that's great. Thank you so much, Max Malka and Senedab for joining us today. Thank you, Johanna. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. That is all from us today. And of course, to read more about the brilliant uh, thoughts of these two wonderful people, you can download the Nostradamus Report. The link is in the show notes. Industry Insights is produced by the Berlinales European Film Market in cooperation with Goethe Institute and co-funded by Creative Europe Media. And today's episode was developed in partnership with the Nostradamus Project of the Göteborg Film Festival. If you liked what you heard, do share this episode with a friend or give us a review on your podcasting platform. It does help other people find the show. We'll be back in your feed in no time.